The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Voice America welcomes you to Stars of PR with Cindy R. Now, here's the host and CEO of BR Public Relations, Cindy Rakowitz. Morning, everybody. We have a very interesting guest today, and his name is Justin Paperny, and he is the writer of two books, one, Lessons from Prison, and Due Out Tomorrow, Ethics in Motion. Welcome, Justin, and did I pronounce your last name right? It was perfect. Very good. Thank you. Yeah, good, good. So why don't we start in the first segment by talking about how this all happened. Let's set a context. When you write a book called Lessons from Prison, obviously you serve time. So let's backtrack to what you were doing for a living and what went down. Sure. Thank you again for having me. My my background certainly suggests that I would never have spent time in, in federal prison. I grew up uh, in Encino, California, and had good parents and all the, the good stuff that follows a, a good life. Uh, went to prep school, graduated USC in 1997. I was also a baseball player in college. And then I started my career, like most people do, working day and night as a stockbroker at Merrill Lynch, Bear Stern, and then UBS. And about four or five years into my career, I was not really enjoying my career, not that happy with my life, so consumed with with making money and tried to advance. And and I got caught up in a, well, I didn't even know the word at the time. It, it later became a Ponzi scheme. But I had a client that was running a hedge fund. And within about a year or two, my client was asking me to do some small favors on his on his behalf. And not really knowing that I was doing anything wrong. I attended some meetings. I sent some emails. I said some things that were untrue. I rationalized that because I was working in in an aggressive culture that encouraged making money at all costs, that it was okay. My client, there were a lot of these telltale signs along the way that something was afoot with my client because, for example, my client, the first year that he was on my clock, he raised $12 million, and then he lost $12 million. So my partner and I were sitting in our Century City office telling ourselves, how is our client, this hedge fund manager, raising millions of dollars and losing millions of dollars? Clearly, he must be making misrepresentations to people. And we knew he was. We just didn't think it was our responsibility to shut it down. Ultimately, we did have a responsibility to do more, and... Eventually, the, the fraud came crashing down, and as a result, uh, I was I pled guilty to one kind of conspiracy to commit securities fraud for facilitating the fraud, helping it. Uh, pled guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit securities fraud in February 2007. Was sentenced in 
February 2008 and then ultimately surrendered to have federal prison camp begin this prison term in April of 2008. It was an experience that I had never could have uh, imagined. The time before I went to prison was certainly the worst part, three and a half years fighting my case, not knowing what's coming. You hear about federal prison and you think you're going to get beaten and hurt and your life is over and it's ruined. And we see these images on TV sensationalized by the media and it, it wasn't entirely true. And finally in prison, uh, I had a chance to get my bearings, get it together and prepare for the really toughest part of being a convicted felon, the release, the, the next phase of your life. It's, it's a different life and I want to help others understand what it's like. Well, I, no, well, I think that people definitely um, have their interpretations through stereotypes and images in the pop culture. So um, if you can shed some light on how things can be different, particularly in the white-collar crime arena, um, I think that it would be relevant information. It's interesting. It's the, the events that have led up to your incarceration is very, very interesting because in your head, you thought that you were really just doing the best that you could be in your job to make money and to help your clients, I guess, right? Well, that's right. I, I worked in an aggressive culture, and, and like most companies in America, we had these corporate codes plastered on the wall, and they turned out to be static platitudes. We didn't, we didn't follow them, and management would say one thing in meetings and then individually treat different brokers differently. If you're producing more, the rules didn't apply to you. If you're a younger producer, they'd hold you accountable. And I produced enough, and I was making enough money for both myself and the firm that they were willing to overlook some ethical and even criminal violations. And I figured that it was the Wild West and I can do whatever I wanted. So while the culture taught, while uh, the company talked about ethics, the culture trumped the code, and that was about making money. And, and ultimately... You can't put a corporation in prison. And we talk about white-collar offenders in jail. I really assumed I was going to one of these country club places that I heard about my my whole life. My friends still think I went to, to one of those places. And granted, it was a camp. I never felt threatened or, or anything like that. But it was uncomfortable. It was inconvenient. It was humiliating. It was disgusting, really. And I say that because I was embarrassed when I crossed over into prison boundaries to ever mention that I went to USC I was raised with wonderful parents. I was an athlete through USC. I was embarrassed to talk about it because I really had no excuse to, to be there. I had all these op- opportunities and breaks in life. Like so many of your listeners, or so many of these schools that I speak to, I travel the country talking to business schools, and so many of those young students are very much like me, all these breaks in life. And most of the men that I served time with weren't so fortunate for a lot of them prison was a part of their life's trajectory where but for someone like me it wasn't supposed to be, not the way I was raised and taught by my parents. And that's part of the reason it can be a tougher adjust, adjustment for a white-collar offender. That's part of the reason a lot of them aren't liked. I joke sometimes that I think I'm a likable person. Um, I think I'm kind despite my conviction. And it was an adjustment for me to be looked at differently from my other felons. In fact, I had to work really hard for them to respect me I had to work day and night, as many as 20 hours a day in prison, to prove to them that I was remorseful, I felt terrible for what I had done, but I was committed to trying to do something more. So there's this view of the white-collar offenders. We have our money buried somewhere. The feds get it all, I promise you. 
very humbling to have once had money and then go to prison and you've lost it and you're relying on other people to support you, especially when you've once been a leader. And it's humbling to do the work in prison. I was scrubbing pots and pans five days a week or scrubbing, working in the the dorm, mopping, mopping floors. In the end, it was good for me. But at first, it was a huge adjustment, more than I had ever imagined. Yeah, I would, I would imagine that's true. Were there anybody else, I mean, with white-collar crime becoming very rampant, I guess, you know, after, I mean, we read about it day in and day out, thanks to Bernard Madoff. He made it sort of um, headline news for a very, very long time, I guess, you know, in 2007, right? And I is that about the time that you were serving? Right. I, I went in in April 2008. So, about I was writing lessons from I was writing lessons from prison towards the end of my term. I was finishing lessons from prison, and Bernie the Madoff case was becoming um, big at the time. That upset a lot of men initially how that was handled. There's this view in prison, and I believe it can be an accurate view that white collar offenders can be treated differently. You can facilitate a Ponzi scheme, mail fraud, wire fraud, bribery, and be out on bond for quite some time before you surrender to prison. I was one of them. I was out on bond for a year before I went to prison, where a lot of fine men who are convicted of dealing drugs or selling drugs are arrested, held in a county jail, be at MDC in downtown. And it upset a lot of men that Bernie Madoff was allowed to live in that that penthouse in New York pending his guilty plea. Now, I know he got 150 years, and they remanded him at sentencing. But even that, how it was handled, upset a lot of men that he wasn't immediately, you know, sent off, cast off to prison. Um, the sentencing issues are, are a huge problem, I think. I'm grateful I only got 18 months. That's a cup of coffee in the prison system. So time with a lot of good men that would get 5, 10, or 20 years to these ridiculous mandatory minimum uh, drug laws. Of course, they need to be held accountable. They need to serve some time in prison. They need to pay the price. But these terms are so long, and it's my hope in time that it changes. And my book, Lessons from Prison, Chapter 10, is called The Kingpin, and I base it off my mentor and role model, Michael Santos. Got in prison for a little more than 23 years. In 1987, was convicted of a nonviolent drug crime to distribute cocaine. He knows he had to be held responsible. He took it to trial, lost. He was given 45 years, and he'll do 25 years. And you look at some of the crimes and the disaster that's followed some of these white-collar crime investigations, and nobody's going to serve that long. And I hope at time it, it changes. So it's very tough for politicians to talk about sentencing reform. They want to get elected, and I understand that. And if you talk about that, you appear soft on crime. So it's just easier not to deal with it. So a lot of good men serve longer in prison than they should. Well, it's very interesting. We'll talk more about Michael Santos in the next segment because I know that you wanted to talk about that more in depth. And also in the coming segments, we'll talk about your new book, Ethics in Motion, and how that differs from your last book, Lessons from Prison. So we'll get to all of that stuff when, um, you know, in the coming segments that listeners are going to be looking forward to. Um, the last question that I have for this segment is, though, um, and I don't really think that I. I got a clear answer, is if you had the opportunity to meet anybody else in prison that also were in for white-collar crime, or were you the only one in where you were serving? No, about 20% of the offenders at that federal prison camp were white-collar offenders for 
serving anywhere from really one to five or not really more than seven or eight years was my experience. Wire fraud, security fraud, bribery. Uh, so about 20% of the offenders were serving white-collar white collar crime. And so you really weren't alone. I mean, you said that you've, I mean, wouldn't the natural group for you to be drawn to are other white-collar crime offenders? You would think, but I, you would think, ironically, I had very few friends that were white-collar offenders for, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, we had a tough time accepting responsibility. I was no, I was no different. My first few months, I was upset that I was in prison. I blamed my senior business partner for handing me out to dry. I blamed UBS for writing a check to the victims and painting me out as a rogue employee. I said 20 years ago the SEC would have sued me civilly. The Department of Justice wouldn't have sent me to jail. I blamed everybody but myself, and many of the white-collar offenders are that same way, claiming we shouldn't be in prison. There's been some sort of injustice. Okay, well, listen, we're going to talk more after this commercial break. Stand by. We'll have more with Justin Papperney when we come back. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, product launches, parties, media training. At VR Public Relations, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, crisis management, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio shows. VR Public Relations gets the job done, whether it's an intimate party or a huge film festival. In fact, you've probably seen our work in the New York Times, on the evening news, CNN, and the morning shows. Now, it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of VR Public Relations. Visit us online at www.vrpublicrelations.com or call 1-818-783-3307. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio shows. VR Public Relations. We do it all. www.vrpublicrelations.com. Women in business today face many challenges in advancing their careers and reaching their goals. There are corporate executives, entrepreneurs, and business owners that have made their mark in business. Now you can learn their secrets and tips. Listen to Women Mean Business as your host, Bonnie Marcus, explores how to thrive in the business environment, navigate the workplace, and climb the corporate ladder. Listen live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and effectively promote yourself today. Tune in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's practical, positive solutions for a happy, empowered, and successful life. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Stars of PR with Cindy R. If you have a question or comment, call in at 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Here's Cindy Rakowitz. 
We're back, and we're talking to Justin Paperny, and he is the writer of the book Lessons from Prison and Due Out Tomorrow, Ethics in Motion. What's the difference between lessons from prison and ethics in motion, Justin? Sure. Uh, le- lessons from prison started as a blog from, from jail. I was writing letters home to my mom, and then I started to receive letters from men and their families heading into the prison system, and I realized it was helping them. From there, I wrote Lessons from Prison, uh, which is a story of my life, my crime, the decisions that led me to federal prison, the consequences that followed uh, my behavior. I bring in some other white-collar offenders that I that I serve time with. So it's really a guide to the criminal justice system. If you're in trouble, if you're thinking about going down that bad path, if you do it, what are the consequences that could follow? So a number of business schools across the country use Lessons from Prison as part of their, their ethics, accounting, finance type courses, so it's a tale through prison. Ethics in Motion isn't really about me. I narrate in this book. Immediately after my release, I began my career as a, as a consultant, prison consultant, um, consulting white-collar offenders on their way to federal prison. And I was released August 17, 2009. Two days later, I got my first call from a client who was a, a former CEO of a company and he had access to millions of dollars in capital a day that he could have stolen, yet he reimbursed himself, or he had the accounting department reimburse himself additional uh, char- uh, kickbacks, not kickbacks, reimbursement expenses over a course of several years, and it came back to bite him. And he went to federal prison for it. And I heard that story, and I couldn't believe it, because clearly my client didn't set out to scheme or rob. He had access to millions of dollars in capital, yet it was one small decision that led to another. And it was incredible. And then about a month after that, I got a call from a woman, a CPA, who was on her way to federal prison because she did a small favor to help a client that made up two-thirds of her business. And I said, wow, she didn't set out to do bad either. She's a really honest person. She just couldn't say no to her client. She's a bit of a people pleaser like I was. Wow, every student, every executive in America needs to hear this story. They didn't set out to do bad things, but they're on their way to strip searches in jail. Wow. Well, no, it's it's really it's a, it's quite incredible, and I could definitely see that there might be more of a need for a prison consultant, particularly for white collar offenders, because they didn't grow up in the system, like you mentioned in the first segment of the show. It's not like they have people that they could talk to. Oh, now, okay, you're going to go in the can. Let me tell you what's going to happen, right? I mean, it's a it's a whole different situation. How many prison consultants are there out there? Well. I don't know how many there there are that try to – there are a lot of men that serve time that come out and, and try to do that. I tried to document through my daily blog in prison what it's like, how you can overcome that prison doesn't have to be that bad if you can leave with a plan. So there, I'm sure there are – there's an array of them out there. I know that I, I specialize in working with white-collar offenders. I prepare them for every stage of the process from sentencing to surrendering to the – to surrendering to that different world of federal prison. And then, of course, probation and home confinement and the release and all that follows a felony conviction. And that's what ethics in motion is. It profiles 14 once distinguished individuals who made a mistake. They're on their way to federal prison telling themselves, I can't believe this happened. So it's a, it's a teaching tool to help others understand. So I don't know how many prison consultants there there are. I know that I derive a great deal of satisfaction in helping them, certainly more fulfilling than clicking a button to buy 10,000 shares of Microsoft while working as a broker. And too many people think prison is the end. Uh, they think 
life is over, and this unknowing is the worst part, waiting to be sentenced to federal prison, Googling your name. And when I Google, my mother still calls me and says, I Google your name, your Department of Justice, DOJ press release still comes up. I hate that. I, I hate having to see that. It takes a long time to accept it. But too many white-collar offenders, they do what I did before I went to prison. They sit at home. They, they moan. They lament about their life and their problems and what's happening and think it's over. And they need to know that it's not over because I only got 18 months in jail. But the three and a half years I went in before that was 100 times worse than the prison. Yet I was in my home in Studio City to see my friends and family. But it was worse. And they need to know that it's not the end. But they got to work. They, they got to work. I'm not a, a fix-all here. I, they need to work and prepare for it because if you're not prepared to, to go to prison or leave, you can get one year in jail, but it'll turn out to be a life sentence. I guarantee it. Yeah, I guess what you know, what you've learned is that you know you could use the time to one's benefit, and writing is certainly something that's not discouraged. So, writing a book, where better do you have an opportunity to devote yourself to it entirely? I'm not saying that it's the best circumstances, but there are many, many people who aren't serving time that kind of wish that they had an opportunity to lock themselves up and cut themselves off from life so that they could have the time to focus on writing a book. I mean, most people that are, you know, that are successful business people want to do that, but the thing that limits them is that they don't, don't have time. Well, I, 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 I disagree with that uh, to a degree. One, I should say it's not totally encouraged in federal prison to write a book. I was mocked by both staff and inmates for writing a blog and book. Counselors told me that uh, some counselors, not all, said, who's going to care what a felon has to think about ethics or morality? Inmates told me I wasn't down long enough to write about jail. So I wouldn't say that I was encouraged, but I, I had an obligation to do more. I was released from prison August 17th with huge financial debt in a new career. All of my licenses were stripped. Yet I found the time in the last 12 months to allocate a few hours every day to completing the second book. I hear that a lot. I, I've lectured at USC, my alma mater, a number of times. and I've received emails from students that say, man, what I would do to be away for a year to write a book, it requires great discipline. And I tried to write my book from home, but with text message and email, it's not possible. I took myself to the library and I worked and I still have financial obligations I find a way to meet. So I hear too much of that. I think with discipline, persistence, and a pen, it's possible to write a book, whether you're in prison or not. This requires discipline to do it daily. Yeah, no, I think, that, well, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying that if you, if you really don't have a lot of options to make other things get in the way, and when you're not serving time, you have so many excuses not to. I have to do my job. I have to go to work. I have to take care of the kids. And I'm not, and I'm not underestimating the fact that when you're in prison, you'd give anything to do those things because you realize that they're taken away. I'm just, you know, all that I'm trying to say is, is that when you really don't have a lot of other um, tasks interfering with, um, you know, paper and pen or, you know, putting your thoughts down, it, it's, it's kind of an opportunity for people who you might be advising to write if they always wanted to. Well, I tell them that you're, you're exactly right. 
You're right about that. You have um, there's an opportunity in federal prison to do more than people ever could imagine. After you do your job and do your responsibilities around the compound, you have 12, 14 hours a day. I, I joke that well, I shouldn't say I joke. If some taxpayers saw the way that our prison system is run, they finally step up and say we need to do something about our our justice system. It, it really is incredible because there is no responsibility in jail. If I brought you to the camp, Cindy, you'd walk around and you'd see men walking the track daily. You'd see them watching football, watching the Kardashians on Tuesday night, bingo on Wednesday night. We have all day to do whatever we want, and then we're unprepared to go home. So you're right. If I wasn't writing a book, I would have been exercising. I would have been reading. I mean, you have all day to do all day to do whatever you want. And I tell the I tell my clients exactly that. How do you want to plan your day? How do you want to allocate your day? How do you want to leave a little better than when you went in and done well? A prison term could be a sabbatical, a little break from the realities of of the real world to jumpstart you for the next phase of your life. But it requires discipline because a lot of guys say they're going to do it. I get letters from clients, and maybe I'm not that good. They say, I can't do it, man. I'm on this compound. I miss my family. I miss women. I miss my kids. I miss my dog. I'm sad. I'm broke. I got no future. What do I do? And then they lay in their rack all day, and they're scared to go home because they have no future. So those, that those that class. work can do it. Yeah, well, I would imagine that, you know, in your counseling to your clients, you try to pave a program for them so they don't get, you know, locked into their self-pity, right? You can't, that, that the, pity, the, pity will, the pity will kill you. And family will come to resent you, I learned, not from experience. Your family and friends will come to resent you if you play the, the, the pity card all the time. You'll call home and say, it's so sad here, it's so hard, I can't do it. Incarceration is tougher on the family, it's tougher on the kids. And prison's not that tough, not a camp. And when you stay wrapped in that cycle of it's not my fault, I can't believe I'm here, eventually people are going to give up on you or they won't put up with it any longer. And then that simply confirms what the inmate tells my, tells himself. I have no future. Nobody wants to help me. This is my life. You have to work to break that cycle of, of failure. You need to work to, to overcome. But for some, it proves, it proves too difficult. And that's why... I couldn't believe men that are serving three months or six months. A lot of clients of mine serving three months or six months. It's not the prison time. It's coming home and having to tell a woman over a cup of coffee that you serve time in federal prison. And that's even humiliating. It consumes the whole conversation. Or you meet someone new and you have to disclose it again or you have to check that box on an employment application that you're a convicted felon. These are things that students or business executives don't think about when they're sending an email to help a client or saying something to, to close a deal. We don't think about it at the time because they don't understand the consequences that could follow. Unfortunately, my prison client, prison consulting clients and me understand, will now understand the consequences that could follow. And they're brutal. They're life-lasting. And you know what they're supposed to be because committing crime is serious and creating victims, their lives are different. So that means my life is supposed to be different. Well, it seems that you've made a super recovery, and I know that you did a lot of hard work to, you know, create this new career for yourself, and um, it makes sense because you're right up front. You don't have to worry about checking the box. Um, what you're doing 
really kind of encompasses your experiences. So you're really empowered by it rather than embarrassed by it, right? I am, but it didn't, it didn't happen by accident. In the first four months, I was angry as hell that I was in jail. You mentioned earlier, did I have white-collar, were there other white-collar guys? Yes, but I didn't hang out with them because we tend to complain a lot. We're angry. So my friends, believe it or not, were a lot of the drug offenders who seemed to accept responsibility than anybody else, and that included my friend I mentioned, Michael Santos, serving that 45-year sentence, who never complained, was never angry, and Michael helped me understand I had a responsibility to do more. Blaming others isn't going to get me anywhere. Blaming UBS or my partner doesn't excuse my conduct. And that oh, was, that well, was, listen, we're going to come back right after this commercial break, and as promised, we'll, you've really created a great lead into the Michael Santos conversation. Um, and I also want to talk to you in the next segment a little bit about management responsibility because you touched upon the fact that, you know, management will sometimes support people, sometimes not, and we want to hear more about that. So stand by, and we'll be right back with Justin Paperney after this commercial break. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, product launches, parties, media training. At BR Public Relations, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, crisis management, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio shows. BR Public Relations gets the job done, whether it's an intimate party or a huge film festival. In fact, you've probably seen our work in the New York Times, on the evening news, CNN, and the morning shows. Now, it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of BR Public Relations. Visit us online at www.brpublicrelations.com or call 1-818-783-3307. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio shows. BR Public Relations. We do it all. www.brpublicrelations.com. In the spirit of Have Couch Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling. Whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Never be satisfied. Let that be a lesson you take away from Double Time with Double D, featuring businessman and former NFL star Dave Duerson. We'll talk about the NFL with special focuses on the game itself, and Double D will take your calls and answer your emails live on the show. It's not Football 101, but rather an in-depth look in the locker room, on the field, away from the field, and opening up the mind of the player. The program will also feature positive messages. So tune in to Double Time with Double D, Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Sports Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com A Bicon! 
Get free advice from crisis communications guru Cindy Rakowitz now. Call 866-472-5788. Let's get back to Stars of PR. Here's the host and CEO of BR Public Relations, Cindy Rakowitz. Hi, we're back, and we're learning lessons from prison, and we're talking about ethics of motion, and we're talking to the writer, Justin Paperny. Justin, I want to go back to UBS, and I want to go back to what your feelings are about management responsibility, because in old school management anyway, um, it was always the person on the top in, you know, large corporations who had to take some responsibility for things that may have gone wrong. And whether it's in the financial industries where there's a lot of regulation or a publicly traded company where there's also a lot of regulation, and it's, you know, both SEC, so, you know, you're not talking about completely different situations. And, you know, my experiences have always been, since the whole half of my, the first whole half of my career was in publicly traded corporations and in a very visible role with publicly traded corporations. I, I was their spokesperson. I had to do the right speak or I could be in trouble. But ultimately, as long as I cleared everything that, you know, was said, if something went awry, if I cleared it with the people on top, or if I really did the right thing on behalf of the corporation, that was the code, doing the right thing on behalf of the corporation, it was pretty much of a fail-safe. So in, in this Madoff era, there, I think the rules have changed. And there were a lot of people that began to run scared, even on the management level. But, you know, how is it <clears throat> determined whether or not the people that you were reporting into may have been the people that were engaged in the wrongdoing rather than yourself. Well, at, at UBS, we were, I always, there was this great deal of, uh, there was a lot of this pressure that I felt as a young executive. When I was 26 years old, I received this large signing bonus to move my book of business from Bear Stearns to, to UBS. And, Right around the time I made this change and got this bonus, the, the brokerage industry was changing. And in, in short, my production was going to suffer while I transitioned my business. Yet UBS said, we expect you to produce the same amount of money. We've given you this bonus. And that pressure concerned me. It scared me. And I heard it. I felt it always from, from management. And then it grew worse when friends of mine who received similar bonuses were getting fired ostensibly for ethical violations, but really they weren't producing enough, so I rationalized that uh, they want me to hit the numbers at all costs. And I believe that I was right, because when I hit the numbers at all costs through running commissions for a, uh, by a fraudulent hedge fund that everybody knew about, they applauded me. I got a bigger bonus. I got a better office. I got the, the weekend trip to St. Regis Town in Monarch Bay to play golf, live like a king. So they overlooked... Of course they overlooked, and it comes down to these corporate codes that, that we discuss, and every firm has them. But Bear Stearns was the, in the human resource room, a huge wall, a huge sign on a wall that said honesty, integrity. At Bear Stearns, at UBS, it was a big black binder, and you dust it off, you open it up, and you see these platitudes posted. They talk about it, but my experience was it came down to making money, and part of my problem was I figured because everyone knew that my client was running a, 
a, a fraudulent hedge fund or a Ponzi scheme. My partner, senior manager, legal compliance in both Stanford, Connecticut, and New York. I told myself, well, they all know because there were so many red flags. There were signs. My client had lost millions of dollars. He was he lost money on every trade that he ever did. Tons of commissions. Um, some suspicious phone calls from investors who were curious about statements they had received. So I would go to management and disclose this to them. And we said, well, what do we do? And I said, I don't know. What should we do? And they said, I don't know. What should we do? And I'd say, well, you're the manager. What do we do? And we'd go back and forth like it was a little game. And ultimately, we came up with a plan. Uh, We created a disclosure letter that basically said, Cindy, if you'd like to give my client, the hedge fund manager, a million dollars, you have to sign this letter, Cindy. It says, we didn't encourage you to do it. Right. You cannot sue UBS. And we were all part of this letter. UBS was behind it. In fact, UBS applauded us, my partner and I, for our ingenuity in keeping this account alive, for allowing the commission to continue. So we talk about corporate codes and responsibility. All of our commission was tied to this hedge fund, and our manager's commission is tied to the brokers. So they may talk about doing one thing, but at the end of the day, this pressure to perform and make money trumped all, and we got paid, and ultimately we paid a price for it. So that's what I tell managers when I speak. You can't say one thing and do another. Because if you do, that corporate code looks like an absolute joke. Take it down off the wall if it doesn't mean anything. You reward employees like me who engaged in illegal and unethical conduct to close deals to get that corner office and vacation, yet that honest broker down on the other side of the office who turned down a deal because it didn't pass the smell test doesn't get a thank you. He doesn't get the liquor seats. He doesn't get anything, but he's done what's best for the organization. And until uh, companies start to treat individuals correctly, properly, and don't treat those who produce the best, it's always going to be this way. And no regulation will, will change that. I mean, look at this Goldman Sachs settlement. To write a check for $600 bucks or whatever it is, which is six days profit, unless they indict the big dogs and send them to jail, it's going to be business as usual. And they sign these agreements without admitting or denying liability. It's ridiculous, and it's not going to change. I don't care how many rules they pass. It's not going to change unless the culture changes. And everyone knows it. Everyone knows it. Um, the culture changing, meaning that they stop rewarding fraudulent behavior because it's making money at any cost. They do what they say they're going to do. They, what you would, the, the image that you would portray when you would issue your press releases or give talks, that's the message they need to exhibit day by day throughout the organization. UBS, even after my case, they wrote a check for $6.7 million to compensate victims of my fraud. I still have couple hundred thousand dollars in criminal restitution remaining that I pay on every month. But even after that, I read about UBS engaging in additional settlement, payouts, this, that. It's saying one thing and doing another, trying to, I think it's just lip service, paying lip service to the good conduct, saying they're going to do the right thing, and then it gets back to business as usual. And part of the problem, at least in the brokerage industry, was this short-term compensation compensated by three months, six months. It encourages aggressive risk-taking because you want to get paid. It's very tough to look at one, three, and five years because your compensation is tied to that. And if you don't have someone that's watching you, you feel as if you can get away with anything. But, and worse, if you're not held accountable, then you can do, you feel like you can do anything you want to if you're not held accountable. And that's the key. I think that's true. How many people like you 
or serving time, and I'm not just talking about from UBS. I'm talking about industry-wide. Say the question again. I'm sorry. I, how many people like you in, you know, your level of management and, you know, people like you, Most. when things started to crack down, would you say had been incarcerated? Most of the white-collar offenders are just like me, uh, a middle-level, lower-level executive. Very few CEOs or CFOs or top dogs are there because the reality is I was the one sending a fraudulent email. I was the one at a meeting helping my client facilitate a hedge fund fraud. I was there. I heard and knew more. So, okay, but there, are many, but there are many other people like you. Right, but there, it's very tough to put. And you can't put everyone in. You can't put everyone in jail. So what UBS would say is, well, we had an idea. Maybe we had a greater responsibility to do more. But it was Justin that was there, and they're right. I, I was more complicit. But those are most of the guys in federal prison, level lower level executives or mid level executives like me who are truly engaged in the fraud. And while CEOs and CFOs and upper management may have known about it, they're not really in jail because they would say the same thing to the FBI. I'm managing a whole office here. I have hundreds of employees to manage and watch. I'm not responsible for everything that Justin is doing. You know, and they're right. But that's part of the reason most of the guys in jail, to answer your question, are me. The regular executives, the stockbrokers, the accountants, the, the lawyer, regular guys, you see very few big guys. I mean, Evers and Skilling from Enron, those are anomalies. Those are cases were so big. But you don't see guys like that in federal prison. It's just regular guys like me. They get up and go to work and make mistakes, and you go off to jail, just like that. Yeah. No, well, there's definitely – there's a questionable balance in <laughs> – questionable balance in, in responsibility and who should really – Take responsibility, I think, particularly when you look at a large company that has management with responsibilities. And it's sad that senior level management, you know, kind of survives many, many times by, you know, sacrificing people like you. When I would, I wouldn't call it. I, I appreciate you saying that, and I, I and I still, I just get that from my family. Why you? Everybody knew. Your senior business business partner still works at UBS. How did that happen? Your manager, how did, why are you the only one that went to jail? I had a responsibility to do more. I always knew it was wrong to help my client. I always knew it. I knew someday I would pay the price for it. I always knew it. And I don't think my family sometimes still believes me when I tell them that. Whatever others were doing doesn't excuse but what I did. I had to go to prison and get a lot of help to come to that realization, but it's it's so true. It's so true. And it's the only way to live my life moving forward. For these corporate, for UBS to write a check for $6.7 million, it's like three cents. It's nothing. It's the cost of doing business for them. They say they're going to do better moving forward. That's the way that it, that's the way that it goes. That's how it is for these corporate. It's built into their business model, settlements, fraud, lawsuits, write-up, payouts. It's built into their model. It always will be. But there are people that have to pay the price for bad conduct, and you can't blame a corporate code. You can't blame the pressures. You can't blame the senior business partner. You can't blame management that knows. At the end of the day, as my FBI, I shouldn't say my FBI agent, as the FBI agent that came and got me, Justin, someone's got to pay the price for it. 
You know, I understand. Well, listen, I promised you that we would be talking about Michael G. Santos, and we have one more segment left after this commercial break to do just that. So um, we could talk about the foundation, how you met him, because he sounds like he's kind of one of your mentors, and, um, you know, talk about what the foundation is all about. Sound good? Yes, thank you. All right, stand by, and we'll be right back right after this commercial break. Talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, product launches, parties, media training. At VR Public Relations, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, crisis management, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio shows. VR Public Relations gets the job done, whether it's an intimate party or a huge film festival. In fact, you've probably seen our work in the New York Times, on the evening news, CNN, and the morning shows. Now, it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of VR Public Relations. Visit us online at www.vrpublicrelations.com or call 1-818-783-3307. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio shows. VR Public Relations. We do it all. www.vrpublicrelations.com. Being here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern-day enlightenment. This show is an exciting exploration which opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss being here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern with Ariel and Shia Kane right here on the 7th Wave Network. Emotional intelligence has been documented to be the most important skill for a leader to move up in an organization. Leaders Playbook will unpack what emotional intelligence is, why it is important, and how you can raise your emotional intelligence for yourself, your direct reports, and your teams. Join Dr. Relly Nadler every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern, to the Leaders Playbook on the Voice America Business Channel. Your success, your success could depend on it. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Cindy Rakowitz has won more awards than she can hang on her wall, including three Clios. Call in now at 1-866-472-5788 and you can have one. Okay, maybe not. But she will answer your questions. Back to Stars of PR with Cindy R. Okay. Um, Michael G. Santos Foundation aimed at reducing recidivism and helping at-risk youth. Tell me about this, Justin. Sure. M- Michael Santos went to prison in 1987 for a nonviolent drug crime, was sentenced to 45 years for distributing cocaine, was given the kingpin statute. Got a long time in jail, started off in the penitentiary, and he's worked his way all the way down to the camp. While in prison, he's brought several books to the market. But more importantly, he's counseled thousands of prisoners on how to prepare for a better life. Uh, he helped prepare me for a better life, launching 
lessonsfromprison.com, from prison with my blog and, and helping me really get things together, helping my mom in that prison visiting room. So I'm convinced that prisoners need more than hope. They need more than a two-week pre-release course that tells you how to balance a checkbook and showing us, um, you know, that McDonald's video of how not to eat McDonald's for 30 days straight and to get fat and this and that. That's the pre-release course in prison, believe it or not. I'm convinced prisoners need more, and that's what the Michael G. Santos Foundation is going to do. It's going to help those who are going to prison prepare, make good use of your time in prison, uh, educate, study, learn, prepare to overcome your conviction, and then help them prepare for the toughest part, which is release, and not just talk about it, not have guys like me roll into a prison to give an inspiring talk for 30 minutes on how life can be better. Actual tools need to be developed, so we're creating a comprehensive reentry program that can be, that will be taught, that I will teach to, to prisons, measurable steps that inmates can follow daily to leave better. And then I'm going to go back out into the corporate world, and I'm going to go to these companies and let them know that convicted felons are smart people. I'm going to let them know uh, those that I'm tutoring or mentoring through this foundation, how hard they've worked and how smart they are and books they've read and how bad they feel for what they've done and how they have children and how they are ready to contribute and give back and reduce these deplorably high recidivism rates that sends nearly 70% of men back to jail. They want work. They're qualified. So that's what the foundation is going to do. It's going to help those prepare to overcome their conviction, work in jail to leave a little smarter and better. Nobody wants to go back nearly 70% do, then I'm going to go into corporate America. I'm going to go to both small and big business and ask them to allocate 100 jobs, 200 jobs for those that complete the Michael G. Santos training, the, the, the work that we're going to do, give them a job. And I think in, in so doing, more than a talk to prisoners that they hear day and night, you need to work, this is what's out there for you, I'm going to help line up jobs, and then the onus always comes back to them. It always comes back to individual responsibility. You did the work. I've helped you line up a position. They're willing to give you a shot. It's on you. No one can do more. And those that claim they can, I think it's disingenuous, and they're creating false hope. What kind of jobs are they? Because on the most part, I would imagine that the education levels, and again, it may be a stereotypical comment, just knowing that you're the exception to the rule. I mean, there's limitations to a lot of people who have been convicted and incarcerated in terms of what their capabilities are simply through um, education limitations. So let me, am I right? Am I wrong? I think prisoners are capable of anything. I've seen men who went to prison at 25 years old, couldn't do basic arithmetic, couldn't, couldn't add, couldn't do anything. I saw through hard work day by day, slow incremental gains and getting stronger. I saw them leave. Uh, smarter and better, more confident, having accepted responsibility. They may not be, go on to become CEOs or CFOs of companies. I never was going to, but I won't limit what any prisoner can do. I've seen men with much less uh, do incredible things from federal prison. So I think they're capable of, I think I shouldn't say they, we are capable of anything with hard work and discipline. And one of my jobs through the foundation is to convince everyone in corporate America despite a felony conviction, despite the tattoo on the neck or the bad decisions of their past, they're leaders and they're strong and they need some guidance and they need help and they need more than hope. They need a job and they need to work and support their family because we don't want to go back to prison. And I think it's doable and I think any prisoner can do it if they're willing to work. And, and what kind of job? 
Uh, any, a lot of a lot of jobs. There are jobs. My father owns a hardware store. I have once worked there. He employs men and women, or men that serve time in federal prison. My brother works there too. Maybe selling hardware isn't that um, exciting. Yet they manage inventory. They deal with customers. They make deliveries. They're handling cash. They're given a lot of trust. I mean, that's a very reputable position. I may have been working there. Had my brother hired me when I got out of jail, but he wouldn't. Um, there's a lot of jobs that will, there are office jobs. A lot of men in prison, not white, not white collar offenders, uh, became paralegals. They studied for their certificate in prison. They're working in law offices right now. Uh, there are things out there that are possible. We need to open up our mind and know that, and just know that it's possible. That that much I'm that much I'm convinced of. Well, I think that answered my question. You know, if you can, you know, if you could educate yourself while you are serving time, and you know, there's an encouragement to do so, then you certainly can be prepared with a skill to, you know, approach the job market particularly if it's a certificate like a paralegal. That's exactly right. It's, the thing is it can't, you can't begin preparing for your release two weeks before. It, it needs to begin. I teach a pre-release course at the courthouse in downtown to offenders before they go into federal prison. And we, I, I have copies of my book, Lessons from Prison. I teach a course. I follow up with questions. They're already preparing for release before they've ever gone in. We're structuring their days. They're forming book lists. Uh, a lot of men that I mentored in prison, there were standing in line waiting to enter the chow hall. We have index cards because we're building our vocabulary. We're learning them in their verb and noun form. We're writing letters to potential employers from prison. That's a great way to do it, Cindy. That's something that'll, that others need to do. A quick letter that says, hi, I'm going home from jail in a year. Don't think this is strange. You may not respond. I'm in jail. You probably won't. But let me tell you something. I'm a good person. I work hard. I have a beautiful wife and two kids, and I don't ever want to go back to jail. So I'm going to write you for my the following year until for the next year until I come home. And maybe you'll give me an interview, maybe you won't. But I read a book and I'm going to send you the book report. And I'm going to tell you what I'm doing to lead better. And you know what? Some of those men get interviews, some don't, and some of them get hired. But it takes real courage to do that from a federal prison. But I can't do that for them. I can just help guide them. I did it, and my life is better for it. And men that did it from jail, you know what? Their lives are better. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Well, we have a minute and a half till closing, so is there anything that you want to add as we close the show? Anything that I'd like to add? Anything you'd like to add, Justin? Sure. When I speak to these business schools and, and businesses across the, the country, I, one small decision, any, before you make any decision, think it through. Everyone talks about leadership, and good leadership requires considering what's at stake. Before you send an email, before you want to satisfy a boss or a client or a partner, consider the consequences that would follow. Prison's tough. Having a conviction is brutal. And it's tougher on your family, tougher on those that love and support you. I, um, I know the pressures that are out there. I just encourage you to think about your decision before you engage in behavior that can bring lifelong consequences, consequences that plague us or those who have gone through the system. Thank you. Well, Justin, I want to thank you for spending the hour with us, and um, we want to wish you the best of luck with your newest publication, Ethics in Motion, um, also um, Letters from Prison, and we wish you the best of luck, but it sounds like you're really doing okay. I appreciate it. Thank you for the time. I'm very grateful. All right. Well, you take care, and everybody have a nice, safe 
um, weekend, and we'll talk next week. Everybody take care. Thank you for listening to Stars of PR with Cindy R. Please come back next Thursday and every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern for more insider information on the world of public relations with Cindy Rakowitz on Stars of PR. See you next week. I am an American idol. I've got synthetic disorder. I kill my mother to get on my TV screen. I am a death row psycho. I am a tabloid